Welcome to RIA Plus, a new podcast dedicated to understanding the drivers of growth and success at the upper end of the RIA industry. I'm your host, Mark Bruno, Managing Director and Head of Strategic Advisory at Emigrant Partners. I'm fortunate to have access to some of the most well-run and most strategic RAs in this industry. And with this new podcast and my new role at Emigrant, I'll be highlighting the stories and strategies of leaders who have created and empowered true independent enterprises in the wealth management industry. In this episode of RIA Plus, one of the RIA industry's icons, Mark Diversion, joins me to talk about how M&A has reshaped the RIA channel, and more specifically, how it's changing what RIAs need from their top leadership. Mark, the former CEO of BNY Mellon Pershing, the former head of Moss Adams Consulting, and the author of several influential practice management books, has worked with thousands of RIAs and has essentially seen and heard it all over the course of his career. Now, Mark's suggesting the RIA industry is at an inflection point that requires leadership to focus less on the art of the deal and more on the art of the manage. Or more simply put, how to make mergers and acquisitions successful well after the close. Enjoy episode five of RIA+. Welcome to RIA Plus. This is Mark Bruno, Managing Director and Head of Strategic Advisory at Emigrant Partners. And I am thrilled to have a very, very special guest here today. Mark Tabersian, we've known you for a long time. You probably need no introduction, right? But of course, we will give you one. Mark, thank you very much for joining here today. You are one of the most thoughtful people I've come across in this space. I think I used the term macro mentor because it would be sort of challenging to think how many people you've mentored from a distance over the years in, in the RIA and wealth management space. But I'd like to consider myself one of those macro mentees. So thank you for all the years of teaching and thank you for taking some time out to do the podcast here today. Well, thank you for including me and for the compliment. So it didn't sound like a eulogy. It actually sounded like a compliment. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a lot to talk to, right? And still a lot that is you know, going to take place in the RA industry over the next five to 10 years. So we're far from the eulogy, right? We still may only be in the you know, second or third inning, depending on your perspective in this space. But with RAA Plus, as most of our listeners know, we tend to talk about you know three topics. We talk about growth, we talk about talent, and we talk about leadership. I can't help but think the discussion around leadership with you will be as good as it gets. So I definitely want to anchor there. But before we get into some of the specific questions that I had for this episode, Mark, I know you're not retired. When I last saw you in September, you promptly corrected me and a group of other people to say you are rewired, which is right. a great term. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about exactly what rewirement looks like and some of the things that you're working on now? Sure. So I did retire from corporate life in order to just do things that I wanted to do. So Currently, I serve on a couple of boards. One is a private equity-backed, fast-growing wealth management multifamily office business. The other is a privately-owned independent broker-dealer. In addition to that, I am an advisor in residence to Ernst & Young's Wealth and Asset Management Group. And within that, we're dealing with enterprises mostly in the U.S., but globally, who are going through the same transformation that everybody else is going through. And that's been exciting to be part of something like that because I'm surrounded by a group of really dynamic, intelligent, uh, exciting, thoughtful people from all walks of, of the business. Um, and I'm still doing a handful of, uh, of speeches, uh, maybe about a dozen a year uh, on different topics. And that by itself is intellectually stimulating because People seem to have new issues that they want to broach. 
Some of them are recycled thoughts that we've advanced, but many of them are really new ways of looking at the same problems and how do we confront it. So this is a, a truly wonderful industry, but it's going through its own growth pains. And that's why I often refer to it as growth, the silent killer. It's kind of like high blood pressure. Uh, you don't know it until it hits you. <laughs> uh, that's a great way to put it, I think. And it's interesting because you know, we saw each other in September. You spoke at the RA Edge conference out on the West Coast. And that was the first time I'd heard you speak in several years. And I, I realized I had this moment where it dawned on me how much activity, how much change has really taken place in the RIA space over just the course of 2020 to 2023. M&A has been one of the dominant themes, has reshaped a very good part of the industry. And I actually was reading you know, Practice Made Perfect right before I saw you. And it's funny to go back you know, 10 years or so, whatever the, the publication date was at that time, and see how much had stayed the same while so much had changed around all of us. So I do want to come back to that moment because for me, um, when I was thinking about guests for RIA Plus and some of the first people we'd like to have on, you immediately came to mind, but you immediately came to mind when I was thinking back to that presentation that you did, which was called The Art of the Manage, right? Obviously a playoff of The Art of the Deal. It was brilliant, right? And it was you know, a different way of looking at all the growth, all the change, right? That the industry has experienced, but also really looking ahead as to what the leader of an RIA firm should expect, right, going into 2024 and beyond. So maybe we could start there, Mark, with the art of the manage, why is this such, what is it for one, right? What is that concept and why is it so important right now? Well, one of the things that I think is always important to remind ourselves is that uh, the vast majority of RIA firms are small businesses. And in fact, in many cases, they're micro businesses. Uh, they are just like every industry that is created by entrepreneurs, uh, where they are focused on their technical discipline and not necessarily on the business of, of building something enduring. And so uh, this became very apparent during this rapid phase of consolidation that many of the firms that were that were conglomerating, that were coming together, really didn't have disciplined management and leadership. Uh, it was uh, the notion of doing it just the way you always did it and not really transforming the way in which you think about this from practice to business to enterprise. So this notion of art of the manager is really recognizing that we have made that evolution or we're making that evolution. The evolution from entrepreneur to business leader is a critical component of it. And understanding that what, what the consolidation phase is revealing as it has in virtually every other industry is that we've gone from fragmentation. There still are thousands of small, very small practices, but fragmentation to uh, acquisition or merger to integration to expansion. But the reality is that fragmentation and acquisition is still continuing uh, apace. What is not happening so effectively is the integration and therefore true expansion for the sake of scale uh, is not occurring at a level that one would expect yet. Now, when we look at some of the deals that have taken place, not specific deals, but I'll go back to in 2020, I was at Echelon Partners and I was working with Dan Sievert and team producing the quarterly and then the annual deal reports. And I think the year you know, that I produced the annual report, there were 300 transactions in the space. 
So if we were to look at that over the course of several years, I mean, we're looking at essentially you know, over a thousand transactions over the last several years that have taken place in a space that didn't do a lot of M&A previously. So I'm curious, I mean, we very rarely stop and go back and say, how are those deals doing now, a year, two, three years later, right? It seems like in the media, and I'm guilty of this myself, right? In my previous life, we love the wedding. We don't care as much about how the marriage is going. So I would love to get your take on, you know, roughly ballpark, what percentage of notable acquisitions have been successful in your view? And then more specifically, if we spin it forward and you look at the ones that were successful, what did they do right? Well, I think uh, success is one of those elusive concepts uh, in this case, because it really depends who's defining success. Is it the is it the PE backer? Is it the seller? Is it the buyer? Is it the employees or even the potential successors of the business or even the clients? Have they benefited throughout this? So uh, I would have to say with the vast majority of firms not yet focused on effective integration, uh, perhaps beyond a common name, but actually thinking more strategically about what integration means, that the vast majority of them have not yet realized fulfillment. And so I think that the idea of marriage leading to family is probably more elusive in some cases. I think it it's a, it's a moment of conception, not a moment of, of child raising and doing all the things that you would expect using that metaphor to ad nauseum. But the notion here that the that we've been successful, I think it is too early to evaluate that. I would say that for the most part, private equity investors have done well. There have been some notable struggles, uh, firms trying to go public, for example, or, or be public, or firms trying to raise capital, new capital that they've not been able to. I think there's some notable struggles in the high turnover of employees at some of the firms where uh, where this uh, in, uh, merger has taken place. I think the neutralizing of true succession, uh, people are confusing the idea of succession and sale planning quite often. And I would say, uh, I think that the, the notion of neutralizing many of the successors has been a, ch- a challenge. And so probably the most glaring though is that the vast majority of people in this industry are confusing the term size and scale or growth mm-hmm. and scale. And if we think about that, that that truly becomes um, probably the next phase of what's going to occur in this business. As, as you know, scale is the whole notion of increasing revenue faster than increasing costs. But I think that when I read the trade press about mergers, what they're talking about is absolute increases in assets or absolute increases in clients yeah. or absolute increases in revenue. And in fact, many of the uh, transactions are a little bit like constructing the Maginot Line. There are uh, forts across the frontier, but there's no concentration or achievement of critical mass in these different locations. So you'd say scale has been elusive for most of those firms. and. This may transform the way people think about the business, but I'm not willing to say these are failures. I'm inclined to say that the 
energy around the integration phase uh, will likely increase over the next couple of years. And it wouldn't surprise me to see some of these consolidators merge with others where true management and leadership exists to force the, the, the integration a little bit more seriously. Yeah. And I think there's a lot there that I'd like to unpack. And maybe the first one is just what integration, high quality integration actually looks like. So maybe we can move off of you know how many deals have been successful or what does success look like. But more specifically, what does successful integration look like? It's more than just connecting technology right, and workflows. Um, if you were running a firm and you had just done an acquisition and you're looking at it a year to say two years after the close, what's going right to make you feel that the integration is successful and that one plus one equals more than two? So the first, the first question there is whether the consolidator is viewing integration as part of their definition of success. I think one of the promises that many firms make uh, that are buyers, they are saying to sellers, we'll let you do what you want to do. We're not going to put any emphasis at all on changing your business, your clients, your market, your employees, your management. So for them, they're saying the lack of integration is actually perfect for us because that's too much work. But right. assuming, assuming that they're trying to build uh, a scalable enterprise that generates a better than average return to investors and to employees and to clients, then uh, true integration begins with uh, having a common vision or a common strategy. If they're big enough, they can they can consider different types of clients, but ultimately having a vision of what business you're in and why and who will benefit and why uh, really becomes the framing of everything else. Because if you're clear on your strategy, then you become very clear on your structure. Uh, it's it's a concept in engineering that the vision will inform the construction or the structure of the of of whatever it is that you're attempting to build. And so, a good example of this is uh, if if I'm uh, envisioning uh, serving clients with complex financial lives, uh, and then I acquire a retirement plan business, that's a little bit out of sync. It's yep. not to say that those uh, wealthy individuals don't have retirement plan issues, but it, it's like, which business are you going to invest in? Yeah, because clearly the client experience, the pricing, the servicing, all of that is different in those circumstances. So strategy informs structure. Structure will ultimately inform the type of people you want. Uh, and again, using the analogy of high net worth or retirement plan, that would be a good, good example to think about what types of individuals you'd hire and what you'd have to pay them within that environment. It also tells you a little bit about the career path that uh, would unfold uh, within that. Uh, ultimately, uh, the question then becomes, what is the return on revenue and the return on investment uh, that one will generate from this business? And can you truly drive organic growth? Because now the whole notion of inorganic growth or mergers and acquisitions is that you're getting to critical mass or you're hoping to get to critical mass. Mm -hmm. But the reason you're getting to critical mass is so that you can drive organic growth. Uh, they are uh, they're kind of sequential in how you have to think about it. And that that becomes an issue as these firms unfold. So that's how I generally look at successful integration. Appreciate it. And I think your point around how the inorganic informs or drives the organic 
is an important strategic consideration that sometimes may get lost. We had one of our partner firms on Steel Peak Wealth as the first episode of RIA Plus, and Reza Zamani, the founder, was talking about they're on Schwab's referral program. So they're starting to do acquisitions in the regions where they are actually, you know, at, where they have high concentrations of op- opportunity through that referral network. And it was just a, a simple, but obviously complicated <laughs> example of you know, how the inorganic can really drive true organic. So I think that's just a helpful almost way of qualifying how are we defining success as we go or as we make progress, right? And if and when your acquisition strategy is truly unlocking net new organic growth. And that's probably a good indicator that you're doing something properly. Along yeah, I love that example. Uh, you know, we we recognize that there are probably eight different driving forces within advisory firms, those things that really define them. The vast majority of firms are either focused on their optimal client or their unique proposition. So they may be focused on using the example I said before, the the ultra high net worth uh, client with complex lives, mm-hmm. um, or they may have a technical specialty such as estate planning or tax planning or philanthropy or ESG, if that were still popular. And so the the whole notion of, of that becomes uh, critical. But this idea of focusing on the method of sale, the example that you just cited, is a, is a very clever way to think about uh, how you're going to full, unfold your acquisition strategy. And I think if you contrast that to uh, other consolidators uh, or other acquirers that have just been random, uh, both in geography and in type of firm, uh, that's a much, much harder process for uh, building a dynamic business because what you really are is a mutual fund uh, holding a bunch of RAA assets and it's not very well diversified. (laughs) <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, I haven't heard that one before, but that, no doubt that will stick with me. I am curious too, kind of bringing it back to leadership. So it's very easy to look at a transaction and say, has this deal been successful by all the metrics that you talked to before? But when you're seeing individuals right, that are leading their teams, their firms through transformation, right? maybe successful integration, not just on the technology or operation side, but culturally, they're building, you used the term employer of choice years ago, and that's always stuck with me. I hear a lot of firms use the term enduring firm, which you use the word enduring before or forever firms. When you look at the best leaders in this industry, what are they doing to build you know, enduring or great firms and not just successful firms? Yeah, there's a there's a great quote from from Gothe who said that uh, to rule is easy, to govern is difficult, and I think that that notion applies to many in the advisory business. Is that when you're a solo practitioner or a small practitioner and you are uh, the chief rainmaker and lead advisor, you are truly the ruler of your small empire. But the more dynamic your enterprise becomes, and the more moving parts, uh, the more you have to think about what are the what are the policies, what are the practices, what's the method of governing, and then uh, leading that truly becomes key to the business. So I think that uh, one example of flawed leadership that we see is, is the notion that money motivates. Uh, mm. What we recognize, I think, over time is that money rewards motivated people, uh, that uh, 
And the question is, how do you create an environment in which motivated people will flourish? Mm -hmm. So this is that notion, this connection to becoming the employer of choice is, uh, uh, you know, we're right in the middle of the football playoffs as an example. And we see what's happened to the teams that not only have done a good job of recruiting uh, and hiring the right talent, uh, but also creating a structure where they function as a team, not as a group of individual prima donnas. And that's separating uh, the, the elite from the very good. Uh, it's true in the advisory business is that, um, is that historically we may have been seeking individuals who have their own client base and say, uh, that's going to make it successful. But if they are individuals who don't have the ability to work within the environment you're trying to create, that's going to create a, a, a true challenge for the business. So I think that uh, examples of leadership really relate to the notions that I was talking about before. Uh, do, do the leaders have a vision for the business and do they have an implementation plan uh, where they can measure and define success? Uh, secondly, have they created a career path uh, for individuals where they can encourage the development of individuals and actually establish themselves as an employer of choice? It's not adequate to just be able to attract clients, but also to be able to attract talent. Uh, and in this environment, where there's such an acute talent shortage, uh, that becomes that becomes an issue. So the notion of separating what's a hygiene factor and a motivation factor within within a business really becomes key. I think the, the third is, um, and this should be intuitively obvious to anybody in the financial services business, but not just managing the net or the gross number, but actually looking at what the relationships of those numbers are to each other. So mm -hmm. are we seeing improvements in productivity or pricing or uh, selecting and attracting the optimal client, not just the not just assets. Uh, are we delivering services that are relevant to the types of clients we're we're serving? And so, this business has gone through a profound transformation, and the nature of competition is huge. And it's not just from other RAs; it's from brand name firms, mm -hmm. including in some cases your custodian. And so, you have to say, how is it that you can create? not just a culture of different differentiation, but a positioning of differentiation that you now become recognized as one of the leading providers in the business. I love that. And I think your point around competition is a really good one. It's not just RIA to RIA. A lot of the wirehouses have caught up, you know, the banks have caught up and where it was fiduciary versus not fiduciary, right? 10, 15 years ago, and it was a little bit more black and white. There's a lot of gray right now. And I think, you know, one of the things that you've talked about that I spent a lot more time with our firms discussing recently is just this notion of, you know, client experience as part of that differentiation, right? It's not just the advice you give, it's not just how you manage assets, it's how you're managing the relationship, uh, quite frankly. And that is something that, you know, to me, is so important, but also so hard to define in a lot of cases. So in your view, what is, how do you think about client experience and what does it mean to you know, have a firm that really truly embraces and understands how to deliver a high quality client experience? Yeah, I think the, I think the first part of uh, that answer is really recognizing uh, what is a hygiene factor for clients? What is their, what is their reasonable expectation of what that is going to be? 
And the, the way that I would encourage every advisor and every business leader to think about is consider what the very best experience you've had anywhere, not just in this business, but have had anywhere. Because the, the best experience you've had anywhere is the same experience you want everywhere. Mm. So if if your airline, for example, treated you well or your car dealership treated you like a like a king or a queen, or if the restaurant you went to just made you feel like this is the best place in the world, those very simple examples of how they communicate with you, how they treat you, uh, how they listen to you, uh, how they respond to your unique issues really becomes critical. I think client service is a difficult area to scale, however, mm-hmm. when your client segments, uh, when you have too many client segments, I think advisory firms tend to be over diversified. And so if you're not at a size where you can have multiple client segments, then you have to understand uh, what are you delivering to the low value client versus the high value client? And is one distracting from the other? And is it the same team that is working with each or are you segmenting that in some form? The other part of it is how do you measure it? And surveys are interesting, but part of this is really understanding directly from the clients uh, how they're experiencing who they're working with. I, I mean, what I've heard from many people who have gone through this consolidation as an example is they say, we now have clients that I've never met. And right. That actually is great. Uh, that's That means that they've moved from practice to business. Yep. But the real question is, how do those clients they've never met feel about your firm? And so uh, I think that you don't see high levels of client turnover within this business. It might be one to two percent a year, but you probably have a lot of clients that would consider another option that you don't know about. And so how do you test that in this process as well? Yeah. And I think it's interesting that we haven't necessarily talked about talent as much, right? We know there's a lot of competition for talent right now. I'm very much thinking a lot about the new people that we hire or the people that we already have within existing RIA firms. How do we train them so that they're delivering an exceptional you know, client experience? How do you recruit people who care about you know, delivering that you know, exceptional experience, which is different in many ways than the skills it took you know, to help a firm grow over the last 10 years or you know the 20 to 10 years before that? I'm just getting off a call actually right before this with the Union Square hospitality team, right? Danny Myers group. And they're you know, pretty deep into not just speaking, but doing consulting now. And to me, you mentioned restaurants before. I was obsessed with this podcast interview I heard you know, Danny Meyer do that I think a lot of advisors or leaders of RAA firms can benefit from, where he talked about when he's hiring, they have you know, obviously requirements for IQ and EQ. But HQ, the hospitality quotient, is maybe the most important thing they look for. All things being equal, you could be the best chef ever. That's only 49% of your grade. The other 51% comes down to the hospitality quotient. And actually, I wrote down what the six things are that they look for in an employee. I want to run these by you. Love to get your thoughts. All right. Number one is optimistic kindness. Number two, curiosity. You know, people who are not a finished product. Number three is work ethic. Uh, Four is empathy. Five is self-awareness and six is integrity. So they basically score the other 51% to use that example across those characteristics because they want people who get more satisfaction in making their customers happy, right? Than anything else in the universe. So I'm curious, I mean, that score one, how does it resonate with you? And two, 
How do you factor that into an RIA firm if you're really, truly thinking about hiring people who can create an exceptional service experience? I think that uh, when you're looking at creating the right kind of culture, uh, drawing from the right raw talent is important. So clearly you want individuals to have the aptitude for doing the job, depending which job you're hiring them for. And not everybody is coming in as a, as a partner or senior advisor. Some people are progressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so having the aptitude to do the work is, is critical, but I think many of those soft elements are often missing within firms. In fact, using that example, we had Danny Myers speak at a Pershing Insight conference once, and I, yep. he had the same impact on the entire audience in terms of thinking about uh, how we hire individuals, because it's, it's really quite impressive. One of the parallels that we had at Moss Adams was a, was a concept called Pillar. And we would evaluate everybody from the from the president of the firm down to the lowest level employee, according to Pillar, which stood for uh, passion for excellence, integrity, lifetime learning, lead by example, accountability and respect. And uh, and a, a partner's compensation could be actually affected by uh, how well they demonstrated that or even becoming a partner would be. Uh, part of the evaluation. And frankly, the one area that tended to cause most people to fail was around respect over everything. Uh, mm. So uh, you know, it, it's really interesting when we look at those parallels. But I think that within advisory firms, you have to have the personal growth uh, measure. You have to have the aptitude or ability measure. You have to have the financial impact measure and you have to have that cultural measure like like you just cited in this example in order to really create a wholesome uh, environment. But you have to measure it and you have to use it as a teaching moment, not just as a hiring or firing decision. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned before about you know, the experiences that you have in your own life, whether it's a restaurant or it's a hotel or you name it, being able to hold up specific examples to say this is the standard and how you felt at this moment when the Ritz Carlton or Delta, whoever it may be, you know, serves you in a way that was beyond your description, right? Is how you want to make your clients feel at some point too. I, I have this vivid uh, example of uh, being in a restaurant a number of years ago is with a couple of companies ago. And I, I was bringing my new boss to dinner. It was a really well-regarded restaurant, uh, but uh, the there were four of us, and they the restaurant only allowed for us to have three entrees among us, three different types of things. And my boss wanted something different, and so uh, he said to the server, uh, "Can't you just make an exception this one time? Because uh, we all want something different." And the server went away, and next thing you know, his very angry owner chef was looming over us, and he said who do you think you are? And we said, we just want to order something different. He says, the reason we have these rules and what we can serve is because we only have three burners. (laughs) So, And then he got angry at us for wanting something different. We had no idea why he had his limitations on it. It was a delicious meal, but we're all angry through the entire meal. (laughs) But you don't forget it. That's the crazy thing, right? And you're here however many years later still talking about it, right? And I think those incidents are opportunities, right? How they navigate through some of those issues, right? Not only impacts your memory, but what you'll tell people about your experience at that place, right? So 
I think it's a great story, but I think it's a great example of how if and when there's a challenge, a confrontation, there's also an opportunity and mistakes are fine, right? So long as you learn from them and build on them, right? So with that, we're coming to the close here and there are a million other questions that I could ask you, but I am really curious sticking with the leadership you know, discussion for a bit. If you look at the next five years, right? Because I think that's probably about as far as my mind can go, right? At this stage. And you look at the characteristics of individuals, leaders in this space who are the most successful, what traits, what characteristics do they possess and how will it be different from what has typically driven growth and success in the RIA space? I think what we're beginning to see is the introduction of professional management into advisory firms. Uh, not everybody has a passion for uh, leading or managing uh, a business. Uh, many people would rather just work with clients and that's perfectly acceptable. So recognizing that uh, you're pursuing your passion and not just uh, holding on to a title as if it were as if you had a death grip on it uh, really becomes critical going forward. But I think you know, for example, Philip Polovev does this wonderful course for the next generation of leaders in his business, the ensemble practice, and uh, the number of really elite firms that go through this for the next tier. Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to share with each other and build this bond going forward is truly dynamic. And it's uh, it organizes around things like strategic thinking, not just strategic planning. Yes. Uh, it organizes around uh, the means and measures that are critical to evaluate success within the business. And it's not just looking at a point in time, but it's looking at, you know, what do these numbers, for example, tell me and what's the financial impact of the decisions that I'm making? It clearly involves on having an attitude about the client experience and the and the uh, human experience within your firm uh, that can be transformational within a business. And uh, ultimately, I think that the examples that you cited in the Union Square hospitality around uh, notions of integrity are are key. The question, though, is whether there is a means of holding the leaders accountable. And uh, this is one of those examples of going from uh, from being an entrepreneur to being a business owner or uh, a leader of an enterprise is is you have subordinates or, or peers that may have a view of what you're doing. But if there's no method of holding them, holding the leaders accountable, that becomes a challenge. And that was a great example of what I did learn at Moss Adams is that uh, everybody, including the managing partner of the firm, was subject to not just uh, a downstream evaluation, and it's harder in a partnership like that, mm -hmm. but also a peer evaluation and an upstream evaluation uh, on the same issues that every other employee within that firm has. And if for no other reason, it helps you to, to learn and it helps you to improve. And it's not just a, a critique, but it's actually a teaching moment in in what we are intended to be doing in these roles. And so I would recommend that every firm consider what I call a 360 evaluation that allows you to do that. Yeah, I think we're actually seeing more of that. Uh, I got an email from one of our partner firms, the COO on Friday, after hours asking if I knew of any talent performance management you know, systems that are out there that are different than just the checklist that we've been using for the last 10 years, you know, grade your contributions on a scale of one to five. So we're talking about doing 360 reviews. We're talking about getting as much peer feedback because I think 
in my view, the most successful leaders are the ones who want to teach and the ones who also want to learn. And I think there you know, is definitely an appetite to learn. There's no question. And you mentioned you have Philip and the G2 Institute that they have there. That's a great example. Any other you know, final bits in, or, uh, of advice or any guidance, if there's somebody who wants to invest in themselves, right, wants to become a better leader, are there any books, podcasts, events, any resources that you would recommend for our audience? Well, uh, it's it's hard to cite all, all the resources. Uh, the good news is that there are uh, plenty of really excellent uh, consultants in this business that uh, are resources on a one-off basis, if not on an ongoing basis. I think that more and more firms are bringing in outside directors that might serve as advisory board members, if not fiduciary board members, to help guide yeah. these decisions. And I think finding successful leaders to serve on that um, uh, is very helpful. I can tell you through Ernst & Young, for example, uh, we have a, 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 a program that is made available to firms uh, to help them find board members who can exactly serve those roles. And so tap into those resources to find out who on an ongoing basis can be key to helping you to develop. And as long as you're in the game, you got to continue to improve what you're doing, even if right. you think you've mastered it. Yeah. And we're all students. <laughs> so I think that's a great way to end here. And Mark, I know you can pick and choose your spots and spend time where you would like these days. So I'm very grateful that you chose to spend some time with me and RA plus here in our audience you know, this afternoon. So thank you very much for stopping by the podcast. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. This was you know, particularly fun because we get to talk about something that I think doesn't get talked about enough, which is leadership and not just the importance of leadership, but you talked about strategic thinking versus strategic planning. Those nuances, right? I was about to say little nuances, right? They're not little, right? but you always give me a different way of thinking about things. So thank you for that. And thank you for being gracious with your time. Well, thank you very much for including me. Good luck. All right. And on behalf of Emigrant Partners and RIA Plus, again, I'm Mark Bruno. I thank you all for joining us here. Thank you again, Mark, for stopping by the podcast. And we look forward to having everybody on that very next episode of RIA Plus. Take care.